0: go ahead and uh, open up our Bible. Mike check. Mike, Mike, Mike. Good, good, good. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible the black Bible on the pew in front of you. If you're having trouble finding the book of Amos, that makes sense. It's a tiny little book. It's right before Obadiah, right after Joel. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1, ending in verse 5. I'll read aloud. Please follow along with me in your own Bibles. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel." declares the Lord God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is completely sufficient for our lives, even when it's calling us to repent of our sins. Amen? Amen. Father, we need you to be with us this morning, and we trust that as our word is open, that you will be. We pray that you would open up our hearts to receive the fullness of your presence. Amen. Uh, Four points for you this morning note takers, four points. I'm going to give them to you now and then give them to you again as we walk through the sermon. Number one, Israel loves comfort. Number two, Israel loves worship. And if you want to in your notes, put air quotes around that, around the word worship. Israel loves worship. Number three, God loves justice and righteousness. (coughs) And number four, God loves worship. No air quotes. No bunny ears. Point number one, Israel loves comfort. Uh, We all know the story, and perhaps I don't want to date anyone in the room, but perhaps you know the story firsthand. Grandparents who grew up during the Depression era, when things were really, really bad, You know, there were long lines for soup kitchens. No one could get a job. Your grandma saved scraps of paper and pieces of tinfoil and plastic bags, washed them out, reused them because you never know when she would get more. I remember my grandma who grew up in the Great Depression era, when she would unwrap Christmas presents, she would do so ever so gently and then fold up the paper and save it so she could use it later to rewrap a different gift. I'm talking about having beans for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because there just wasn't money for anything else, that kind of poverty. I'm talking about grandparents who scrimped and pinched and saved and starved. And one of the main reasons they did that was in order to give their children the hope of a better life, perhaps a middle class living or more. And because this is America, praise God, that actually worked. Many of the children of the post-depression era went on to become middle-class citizens, and many of them even went on to become quite wealthy. Well, many of those who struck it rich in the post-depression era, they went on to have children themselves as well. And it, is, it was all too often the case that, that when they had children, instead of giving them the same character and the same ethics that, that their depression-era parents gave them, they, they spoiled them. They said, I want you to have an easy life that I, that I didn't get to have. And so the children grow up to become ungrateful and entitled. Well, that's about where we are here with the Israelites in the days of Amos. The people have become Entitled. One generation presumes upon and takes for granted that which the previous generation had to sweat and bleed and sacrifice in order to achieve. There's a generational short memory taking place here where they've forgotten the dark days of civil war. They've forgotten the fear that hung heavy in the air the first time Assyria marched through Jerusalem. They don't remember the stomachs that growled and gurgled in the middle of the night because of hunger. They don't remember homes that were not decorated with ivory, full of couches and vats full of wine. They become accustomed to this new comfortable lifestyle that we've already talked about. The Israelites have grown incredibly wealthy during this time. And because of that, they've, they've got a, just a comfortable lifestyle and they are going to do whatever it takes to keep that comfortable lifestyle. And so we read in this morning's text, as we've seen for the last several weeks, that the people of Israel are crushing the needy. They are taking advantage of the poor. If you look in verse 1, these cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, they oppress the poor. They crush the needy. Now, in that same verse, in verse 1, the Lord says that this is coming from the cows of Bashan. What are these cows of Bashan? The ESV says that uh, Bashan was an area in uh, the northeastern part of Israel that was rich and fertile. It was known as the breadbasket of ancient Israel. It was where uh, high-quality wheat was produced. There was a volcanic soil that was there that made it just particularly a great place to have wheat production. Um, it was even known so universally to have uh, strong and healthy livestock that you can find references to how strong the livestock were in other scriptures in the Bible. So in Psalm 22, David, he's talking about being surrounded by his enemies. He says, they surround me like a herd of bulls, fierce bulls of Bashan. Ezekiel 39, in a particularly dark passage Uh, so dark that we're just going to have to reset once we get through reading it. It says, You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. The cows of Bashan, these are the luxury cows of the ancient Near East. And Amos is saying that if you look in verse 4, excuse me, in verse 1, that it is the wives of, of Israel, who are these cows of Bashan. He says, who say to your husbands. Well, who says what to their husbands? Wives are speaking to their husbands. The Lord is saying, you cows of Bashan, you're the real housewives of Israel, okay? He's saying, you are a bunch of, spiritually speaking, heifers. Now, this is a very interesting twist to the story of Israel's sin and oppression in the days of Amos, According to Amos, it's not just the men who are guilty of oppression and injustice, but the wives as well. Now, it seems like the men are the ones who are sort of actively doing the oppression. They're the ones actively crushing the heads of the needy, rubbing the faces of the poor in the dirt. And it makes sense that the men would be the active ones in the strongly patriarchal society of the ancient Near East. But apparently the wives of Israel are not just sitting idly by watching their husbands do the dirt. They're actively encouraging it. You can see that in the second half of verse one. Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. You're probably familiar with the trope of the saintly wife married to a man that she thinks is an insurance salesman or a small business owner, only to find out later that he's actually involved with the mafia or some other kind of shadowy business. She finds out what he is, a worker of iniquity, and she doesn't like it. She's not happy about it. She thinks about leaving him, but then she just thinks, oh, but he's so great with the kids, and he's such a faithful provider, and I, I love him so much, and I'm sure he's a good person on the inside. Well, that's, that's not this. That's, that's not what's happening here. We don't have the tortured wife Uh, who is constantly trying to get her husband to stop doing these evil deeds that he's doing. What we have here is what I like to call an actively passive oppression from the wives of Israel. These wives of Samaria, they want these men of Samaria to bankroll their comfortable lifestyle. They've become accustomed to, to this bougie sit-around all day in a bathrobe eating bonbons, watching uh, as the world turns lifestyle. This is what they want. This is what they've come to know. And so they want those vats full of wine to stay full, no matter what it costs, no matter who it hurts. This is exactly the opposite of the wives that we read about in Proverbs 31, the, the sort of the picturesque wife, the godly wife. There we read that she opens up her arms to the poor. This godly wife, Proverbs 31 says, extends her hands to the needy. Well, that's not what's happening here. These wives are telling their husbands, go get that money and don't come back until you do. Do what you have to do to keep me comfortable. Do you remember the sins of Israel that we saw listed out back in chapter 2? Amos tells us that Israel is, uh, they're bribing in the court system, taking advantage of justice. They're selling their neighbors into slavery, which was expressly forbidden. They are turning away those who are very obviously in need in their midst. They're taking advantage of those with less power, like the father and the son, going in to basically rape a servant girl. Well, the women of Israel are not sitting at home sort of pensively wringing their hands about these injustices. They're not praying and saying, Lord, please do something. Help my husband. I love him so much he can't see how lost he is. These are not the tortured souls of righteous wives who are married to unrighteous men. These women are champions of injustice. They are actively encouraging injustice. They're nagging their husbands not about putting socks where they belong in the hamper when they're done with them. They're nagging their husbands about bringing home enough money, doesn't matter what it costs or who it hurts. Now, I think that there are two big applications that we can draw from this reality uh, in this section of the book of Amos. The first is this idea of complicity in injustice. Um, in our Finer Things Club meetings, we read a book together called Just Mercy. Uh, it was written by Brian Stevenson, who was a lawyer in Alabama. And in this book, Stevenson powerfully demonstrates the way in which a people may be complicit in matters of injustice without themselves being the active perpetrators of these unjust acts. So in this story, Stevenson tells the tale of Walter McMillan, the real story of a black man who was falsely convicted of murder in the state of Alabama. He spent six years on death row as an innocent man. Now, one of the things that the readers uh, will notice about this case is that it took place after the Jim Crow era. Now, why that's significant is that there were no longer any racist laws on the books, when people use the, the, the phrase uh, structural racism today, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I don't really like it because I want them to point to a structure. And when they can't, I feel like they're misusing that phrase. But what's so significant here is that there is no structural racism in place. And nevertheless, the injustice of racial prejudice is allowed to continue. Now, why is that? Well, when you read the book, it becomes clear. He, he really tells the story of people at the city, the county, and the state level who were all just actively disinterested in the injustice of this case. What's so significant is that everyone who came into contact with this case could very immediately see that Walter McMillan was not guilty. But whether you're talking about the local sheriff or the DA the local press or the presiding judge over the case or the shoddy defense lawyers or the sitting governors, it's obvious that everyone was actively disinterested in the injustice that Walter McMillan was experiencing. Why? Well, friends, I think it's because even though there was no racially prejudiced laws on the book still, the racial prejudice still existed in the hearts of the people in that community. Somebody had to hang and... Because people just sort of didn't value the image of God in this black man, they were content to let it be an innocent black man. They were complicit. Everyone who knew that he was innocent and were happy to see him hang were complicit in his guilt, excuse me, in this injustice. Now, uh, I want to actively encourage everyone in the room to remember that uh, I'm your pastor, not a CNN news anchor. So I want you to just remember that, like, I want you to just, like, obliterate all of the justice and race talk that you probably hear all day, every day, and remember that what's happening here is not that. I think what's happening here is directly pulled from this reality in the Bible, and I'm just trying to give you an example from our own state, from our own, basically our own time, something that's actually happened that we are close enough to that we can, we can basically touch it. I'm not in any way trying to communicate the fact that every white person in here is guilty of racism. I don't think that that's true. What I do want to communicate is the idea that you can be complicit in injustice even if you yourself are not the one who is doing the unjust act. Think about it with abortion, right? Think about the layers of guilt that are connected to the tremendous evil that is abortion in our land, I think abortion is the greatest human rights issue on the planet today. It is the most significant justice issue in our land today. We kill babies. And it seems like everyone is just kind of okay with it. At our best, Christians aren't. But the world just exists. We just accept the fact that 25 miles down the road, there's a building where five days a week... Babies are killed. Think about the layers of injustice that are connected to that. You have the doctor and the nurses who actually conduct that. That, I think, would kind of rate up towards the top. Like, you are the most guilty. You are actively killing babies. It's your hands that are using those forceps or injecting that saline and burning those babies to death. Then you have... The lawmakers and the judges who allow those, those laws to exist in the land, you have people in the city of Huntsville who know that there's a baby-killing office and don't rise up with pitchforks and flames to go do anything about it, pitchforks and torches to go do anything about it. You have professors in universities who teach the ideologies that enforce and undermine this injustice. You have Christians, professing Christians, who just seem apathetic about abortion, or who, in many cases, I would say, quite ignorantly support abortion. You have Planned Parenthood, you have people who support Planned Parenthood. I mean, the layers here of, of guilt are, are complex and varied. The same thing is true in our lives spiritually, and I just don't want that, I don't want to pass by this without us considering that reality. Next, the second main point of application. Uh, This is specifically for wives. Although, men, I would encourage you not to tune out. So, husbands are supposed to be the providers uh, of the home. They're supposed to provide for their family. They're also supposed to be the primary protectors in the home. If somebody comes kicking the door in the middle of the night, husbands, you're supposed to jump up, right? Okay. But that's not just physical provision, and it's not just physical protection. You're also supposed to be the spiritual providers and the spiritual protectors of your home. Well, in the same way, wives were given to their husbands to be their helpmates. Now, that's not just physical Wives were not given to husbands just to, you know, help them keep things around the house decently in order, to make sure the bills get paid, to go and work a side job to contribute contrib- a little bit more money to the 401k. Wives are also supposed to be spiritual helpers. And what you see here in the book of Amos is that the wives are the exact opposite of spiritual helpers. As I was writing the sermon, I was thinking about my own wife, who is terrible in so many ways, but <laughs> who is amazing in like so many more ways. And I was just thinking about the ways that my wife has been my helpmate spiritually. She's confronted patterns of sin in our marriage. She's resisted me as I've tried to lead her into sin. She has helped correct my theological vision at certain points, essentially protecting me from heresy at one point in our our marriage. She set a strong example for me in matters of personal disciplines like prayer and Bible reading even as a husband and as a missionary, she still sets a pattern there of encouragement and sometimes even rebuke. Just like a wife can contribute positively to the spiritual state of her family, she can also do great harm to her home. Like we see with the wives here in the days of Amos. Right? Don't underestimate just how spiritually helpful Wives, you can be for your husbands and for your children, but do not misunderstand how spiritually dangerous you can be to your husbands and to your children. The Proverbs 31 woman has said, it's said of her that she brings her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. Well, wives, one of the best ways that you can glorify the Lord in your life is by making sure that you do good to your husband spiritually And not harm. Now, what's really interesting about this dynamic at play in today's text is that so often throughout the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel are warned against pagan wives, right? I mean, just over and over again, you probably remember back from our our days in in Malachi, just, you know, hey, listen, if you marry these pagan women who don't worship the same God as us, they're going to bring their pagan idolatry in and it's going to be a threat to the covenant community of God's people. So don't do it. And that's true. What I'm about to say doesn't undermine that in any way. But what's interesting is that marrying an Israelite woman is no guarantee that you've married a woman who will supports you spiritually. You remember Paul later on says in the book of Romans that not all Israel is actually Israel, right? It's possible to profess to worship the Lord Yahweh, but to in fact not know him at all. Well, you know, I can, I can think of just how easily this applies to young men, particularly single young men, and I really don't want a single chance out here, but you know, just you're right there, buddy, you know? And honestly, let me use chance as, uh, as an opportunity to encourage the rest of the congregation uh, to see what wisdom looks like. I have seen chance kind of cut off a couple of different relationships with women who profess to be Christians, right? That's how young guys think about marrying a woman. Like, okay, is she good looking? Okay, she got a good job. Maybe even not that, Right uh and is she, will she come to church with me sometimes and it's kind of like we know that in order to marry a woman uh because we're christians we know that she needs to be a christian but all too often what that looks like is like does she does she just say that she's a christian you know do i can i check that box but when when that's kind of the way we approach it you end up with men who have married women who uh only later do them great harm in their marriage and oftentimes other people in their lives can see that and they warn them they say hey man i don't i don't know about her dude i i'm not sure she's actually a christian and they go oh no everything's fine and then a couple years later everything is not fine back to chance i've seen chance break off relationships with women who profess to be christians who i think it's fairly obvious weren't christians because of this reality right here so brother i'm encouraged by you i know sometimes it's not easy to remain single Uh, but it's a whole lot easier to remain single and follow the Lord faithfully than to be married to a woman who's not a Christian and who will lead your soul into danger. Uh, Chance is an example to this church in a thousand different ways. That's just another one. So make sure you encourage him as often as you can and feed him because it's not easy being single. (laughs) All right. All right. Let me warn you that that's that's the longest point of the sermon, okay? So we're going to be pretty rapid fire. That was a long time. Point number two Israel loves worship with air quotes around it. Look at verses four and five. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and to multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings publish them for so you love to do o people of israel it's commonly said that uh, jesus wants a relationship not religion that's one of those things that it sounds good it sounds like it has to be true but biblically it's it's not true at all the bible does not talk about religion in that way as if it's in contrast to a relationship What the Bible does do is it draws a contrast between pure religion and impure religion, bad religion and God-honoring religion. So let me just read two verses for you that will, I think, illustrate this point. James says, Those who consider themselves religious, and he means that positively, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. But religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And then he goes on to describe looking after orphans and widows, so on and so forth. So he says that there's a religion that God accepts and a religion that God does not accept. And I think that verse probably shows you. There's another verse, 1 Timothy 5.4, if you want to look it up later in your quiet time. Um, in the book of Malachi, we saw this kind of worthless religion as well, where the, he, the Israelite men were divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. And Malachi says that's bad religion. All of this can sort of be summarized by Jesus uh, when he says this. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is in one sentence. That's your pocket-sized definition right there of bad religion. Honoring the Lord with your lips, but not with your life this is Southern religion. This is, what, this is what so much of being a Christian in the Bible Belt is, honoring the Lord with your lips, but not with your, not with your life. There's a difference between loving God and loving to be religious. There's a difference between loving Jesus and loving to just do Christian kind of things because that's what you grew up in. My dad was a preacher. His dad was a preacher. I grew up every Sunday in the church. You know, my uncle's a deacon. I just love to open the old King James Bible. I love to sing the old hymns. But do you love Jesus? Because none of that matters if you don't. True religion says, I want to give and fast and pray and offer sacrifices and feed the poor and go to church as an overflow of my love for God. Bad religion is an overflow of love for self. And when this kind of li- religion is practiced, every religious thing that we do is offensive to God. That's why Jesus says to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, He says, Woe to you. Woe to you is like uh, judgment is upon you, okay? Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe your mint, dill, and cumin. So you do all these religious things. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Doesn't that sound like what's happening here with the people of Israel in the days of Amos? What's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't say that the Pharisees are wrong to offer, offer their tithes. He doesn't say, "Ah, oh, guys, you shouldn't have been offering your tithes. What you should have been doing was taking care of the poor and the needy. No, he says, yeah, you're right to offer your tithes and you should have done these other more important things. You can't sell your neighbor into slavery and then turn around and make an offering at the temple and act like everything is copacetic with God. You cannot take advantage of the poor, defile the temple with drunken orgies, corrupt the scales of justice, and act like your tithes are going to be received from the Lord with joy and gladness. And you certainly can't use religious behavior as a cover-up for your sins. That's kind of what's happening here, right? It seems like Israel is doing that in these verses. It seems like a little guy big truck syndrome is taking place here. There's some overcompensation. So these sacrifices that 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 Amos mentions here, they are meant to according to the Old Testament be offered once, maybe two to three times a year. And here he says Bring them every day. These tithes, uh, there are three different tithes in the Old Testament. We're not going to talk about all of them at length, but basically the first one, it doesn't really say how often you're supposed to do it. You're just supposed to bring in your first fruits, the first fruits of everything. Uh, The second one was the the tithe of the feast. It was supposed to be given on a yearly basis. And then the next one was, was the tithe for the poor, and it was meant to be given every third year. So the Lord here dripping with sarcasm says, yeah, bring them in every three days. And I think he says that because the Israelites were in this habit of making more frequent sacrifices in order to show their religious fervor. Perhaps as a way of trying to overcompensate for their guilty conscience, which was convicting them of the fact that they were not obeying the weightier matters of the law. It's like a bad parent who tries to make up for being a bad parent by buying their kids a bunch of stuff. Right? Compare these two. On the one hand, I know I haven't been around much, and when I have been around, I haven't been a particularly good parent. I've been abusive, disinterested, aloof. Basically, I've done a bad job of loving you. But here are a bunch of new toys. Is everything better now? See, I am a good dad. I am a good mom. Compare that with, I know that I haven't loved mercy and walked in justice. I've disobeyed your law and treated my fellow image bearers like dirt. I have crushed the poor and the needy. But here are some more sacrifices. Here are some extra tithes. It's in response to this that the Lord says, Yeah, keep going. Bring it all in. Why not bring the tithe every three days if you want? Shoot, this will probably keep the, the priests off your back. You're keeping them happy. In verse 5a, God says to bring your leavened sacrifice. If you know anything about sacrifices in the temple, when you brought bread, it was supposed to be unleavened. This is just another way of God saying, you're bringing leavened bread, it might as well be unleavened. You might as well just bring a bad sacrifice because your sacrifices are totally worthless to me. Point number three. God loves justice and righteousness. Um, there's, a, there's a word that uh, Bible scholars use to talk about uh, when two words are always together like this, righteousness and, and justice, it's called a hendiadys. So when you think about like uh, nice and cozy, right, those words are kind of just always together, you know, warm and comfortable, that sort of thing, that's a hendiadys. In the Bible, the terms righteousness and justice are just always sitting there next to each other. So, What's also interesting is that they're always connected to God and to his character. Justice refers to giving people what they're due, right? So uh, that could be used in relation to priests getting their due pay, right? It could be uh, referring to the accused receiving due process. You know, there has to be two or three witnesses. You can't just hang them up for nothing. Uh, It can also refer to criminals getting their appropriate punishment, right? That would be justice, and then righteousness, it refers more generally to just how you conduct your life on a day-to-day basis. In your relationships with your family, with the court system, with society at large, are you being righteous? A righteous person proactively conducts themselves with fairness, generosity, and equity. You can think about it like this. This is, this is not super accurate, but it can be a helpful summary. Justice equals what you do. Righteousness equals who you are, okay? Okay. Now, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. He loves it. It's, it gets him excited. And you can just see it all throughout the Bible. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. See, they're there together. The earth is full of his steadfast love. Psalm 11. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Psalm thirty-seven, twenty-eight: For the Lord loves justice and will not forsake his saints. Now, why does God love righteousness and justice so much? Why does he love it when his people are righteous and just? Well, because when they are, they're just reflecting his own character back to himself. God is righteousness. All that he does is just. And because that, when his people do righteousness, when they live in righteousness and when they do justice, they're just reflecting his character back to himself. King Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and all of his ways are just. Because that's who God is, that's what God loves. So if that's how God positively feels about righteousness and justice, how do you think that God feels about injustice and oppression? Well, he hates it. Look at verses two and three. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you and they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So the Lord is saying, because you've been so unrighteous and unjust, I'm going to punish you. But he, before he does that, he, he makes an oath. He, he swears on his own holiness that he's going to do this. Why does he swear on his own holiness? Well, if you remember from our time in the Lord's Prayer, we said that the holiness of God basically means that God is in a category all unto himself. So it doesn't just mean that he's morally pure. It means that he's so pure that his purity is unlike any other purity. It means that his love is unlike any other love. It means that his sovereignty is unlike any other sovereignty. Everything about God is holy because he is completely other. He is distinct. And so when he swears to Israel by his holiness that he will punish them, what he's saying is, is I'm not like you. You can't bribe me and get out of this. I can't be corrupted by injustice. I'm not enticed by wanting to live a comfortable lifestyle in any way that would cause me to not do what I need to do in this situation. I swear by the fact that I am God and not man that I will do what is right in this situation. And so, he says that the people will be led away by hooks and fish hooks. Some commentators think that this is a picture of like a, a fish who's been caught, although not caught like this, they didn't have that back then, uh, it seems it seems unlikely to me that that's the case. It seems more likely that it's referring to remember we said that the judgment is going to come when Israel uh, excuse me when Assyria comes down and utterly obliterates the ten tribes of the north. Well, it's commonly known that uh, one of the practices of Assyria was to lead away their slaves with hooks in their cheeks or in their tongues or in their noses, they were known to be brutal and leading their captives away in, the, in, in this fashion. So I think that that's what's happening. In verse three, you see that they're going to go through the breaches. That means that these big walls that you're trusting in to keep you safe, they're not gonna keep you safe. We're gonna put a breach in the wall and we're gonna lead you away. And it says they're gonna lead you away into Harmon. Really don't really know what that means. Everything that I read says nobody knows what that means. So, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. They knew what it meant. And it's certainly not good, okay? All right. Let me make a quick aside here. Uh, The book of Amos has us talking a lot about justice and righteousness. And I know that in our current political and social climate, terms like these are very charged, okay? They can be trigger words for people. Whenever the word justice is is mentioned, it seems like there are people on opposite sides of an aisle. On one side of an aisle, people get ramped up. They get excited. They're like, okay, I'm going to turn on my injustice detector. I'm going to make sure it's fully charged, and I'm going to go out looking for it wherever it may be found, okay? I'm going to go on an injustice hunt. On the other hand, you have people who feel like that word has been overused and abused, They feel like any time the word injustice comes up, they've been blamed for doing something that they feel like they're not guilty of, that their ancestors have done. Well, as your pastor, I just want to encourage everyone in this church to let the Bible regulate your passions on this discussion. Not the news, not, not some professor writing some obscure book that people just happen to really like right now, but in 10 years, nobody will remember. Let the Bible regulate your passions about justice. Let it inform your views about justice. It is important that our view of justice is in line with God's view of justice because if it's not, we're gonna make some pretty serious mistakes on either side of the aisle. So on the one hand, if we misunderstand justice in one way, it will lead us to to the point where we heap guilt on people who don't deserve it. right, consider How serious of a thing it is here for God to say that his people are unjust. Consider how weighty and significant it is. God is saying, because of your unjust and unrighteous ways, you are in danger. You are under my wrath. To say that someone or something is unjust if it's not unjust is itself unjust. It is not fair. It is not right. It is not good. You're saying something about this person that God is not saying about this person. It reminds me of uh, Christians who are just quick to call other people who care more about holiness than they do Pharisees, right? Uh, I actually had it happen a couple weeks ago. I was teaching a Bible study in the jail. A lady got up to say something that I didn't think was particularly helpful, and I made a little, little comment about it. And, uh, and she kind of made a little joking comment back but it was a joke that was basically serious, where she said, I was being, a, I was being a, a Pharisee. Now listen, I love that sister, and I think she loves me. I don't think she understands how serious it is to say that someone is a Pharisee. Jesus says that Pharisees are in danger of hell because they are whitewashed tombs. They're pretenders, they're hypocrites, they're actors. They don't actually know God. To call another Christian a Pharisee is a very serious accusation. Or in the same way, to say that someone or something is unjust if it's not unjust is very serious. So we, we probably just shouldn't use that word so flippantly, so casually, because if we do, we will strip it of all of its meaning and its power. If everything is unjust, then nothing is unjust. And then when injustice truly does show up on the scene, we won't have a vocabulary left to describe it with. Now, on the other side of the spectrum in light of everything that's happening now, people are so defensive about it that we can't even talk about justice the way the Bible does talk about justice. The Bible says that injustice exists. It says that oppression exists. And it also says that it exists in many ways in a systemic, uh, uh, on some level, in systemic ways. Right? You have the wives here who are part of a larger system that is contributing to the injustice of Israel. And if we, if we don't come to grips with that, then we're not going to be ready to recognize errors in our own tribe. We're not going to be ready to repent when we need to repent or call other people to repent. And then we will be in danger of becoming Pharisees. We will be in danger of practicing dead religion. We'll just be a bunch of people who go to church and read our Bibles and pray and give and do a bunch of things that we think Jesus wants us to do even though we've come to neglect the weightier matters of the law. Yes, I feel that tension. No, we won't always get it right. But we're going to try to make sure that the Bible regulates the way we think about these things. Not the Christian right, not the Christian left, and certainly not the world. Number four. Point number four. God loves true worship. True worship is never disconnected from right living. Ever. Orthodoxy is never disconnected from orthopraxy. That doesn't mean that we won't ever slip up. It doesn't mean that we'll never fall and need to repent. But it does mean that you cannot continuously live in this pattern wherein you have religious practices combined with injustice, corruption, and oppression. Okay? Uh, this is a pretty significant thing, and it, it weighs heavily on my mind when I think about certain men that I kind of grew up to think of as heroes. So I think about somebody like George Whitfield, who was on the one hand very much known to be a, a preacher of the gospel, who on the other hand very seriously pushed for slavery in Georgia when he was there, kept slaves. I don't really know how to reconcile that. But I do see this principle that it seems like just being doing a bunch of religious things and carrying on oppression. They can't seem to coexist. Rather, true worship, the worship that the Lord loves, is worship where we pray to God, but we also care for the poor. It's where we gather on the Lord's day and we walk in righteousness Monday through Saturday. It's where we read our Bibles and spend time with widows and orphans. It's when we speak up on... The Lord's behalf and defend the glory of his name and we speak up on behalf of the voiceless. The Lord loves it when we evangelize and when we rebuke one another in love for not walking in righteousness and doing justice. At our best, Christians do this well. At our best, hey, get your memory, expand your memory bigger than America in the last hundred years, okay? If you were to just look at America in the last, or the last 400 years, you would say, I don't know, Christians don't do the best job of this. Well, expand your vision bigger than that. Think about Christians who worship God and stood against the cruel practices of the gladiatorial games. Think about Christian missionaries in India who preached the gospel and kept wives, uh, excuse me, widows who had recently lost their husbands from being burned on pyre at funerals. Think about the Christians who have stood as abolitionists against slavery. Think about Christians who, all over the world right now, are praising God and fighting sex trafficking, opposing predatory lending practices, and doing a whole bunch of other good things. At our best, Christians do this very well. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth with what we believe, religious things that we do, duties, and we keep the weight of your matters of the law. That's my prayer for us at Sixth Avenue. My prayer for us is that we will be a people who love the Lord, and because we love the Lord who is righteous and just, we ourselves will be a righteous and just people. I don't know what that's gonna look like for your life. Maybe you wanna go and be a lawyer, and you wanna be a champion of somebody who feels like you know, they don't have any good legal representation, okay? Maybe you just wanna make sure that on your job, you don't do what all the other plumbers do and price gouge their customers. You wanna be righteous and just and represent the Lord in that way. There are a thousand different ways we can represent God's character of righteousness and justice in the world. I kind of let the Spirit lead you in how that should look in your life. If you have any questions about it, though, the elders of the church would certainly be glad to talk with you. Now, there's one more verse, the verse that almost feels like you, you can't end a sermon like this without quoting. Uh, it comes from David after he had committed some very serious sins. In this psalm, uh, David reflects on the nature of true religion and his conclusion is pretty radical. This is what he says. For the Lord will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. So he knows, hey, listen, I've sinned. I got Bathsheba pregnant. I caused her to commit adultery on her husband and then I tried to deceive her husband and then I killed her husband. David knows that a sacrifice is not going to fix everything with God, unlike the people of Israel in the days of Amos. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. True worship for every single person in this room, because we're sinners, must always begin with repentance. We must always be willing to look at our lives, examine the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and repent and confess to God. It is only when we do that that we can receive the full and final sacrifice that has been offered in our place once and for all in Jesus Christ. You cannot expect to receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf by just coming to church and doing a bunch of religious things like everyone else in the Christian South does. The beginning of your journey with the Lord is repentance. Man, once you repent and once you trust in Christ, all of the fullness of the blessings of Christ and his final sacrifice are made available to you. Jesus has died for every single one of our sins, brothers and sisters, even the sins of religious hypocrisy. And so now in light of that reality, we as a church must continue both individually and corporately to live lives of repentance wherein we continually trust in Christ and the sacrifice that he has offered up for the forgiveness of those sins. Let me pray. Lord, help us to see in this story ourselves. Help us to see any ways that we may be blind to our own sins. We thank you for giving us your word, Lord, which is so accurate, so precise. It, it, It cuts deep down into our hearts and it shows us ways that we need to be examining our lives. And we thank you for that, Lord, because we know that through the pain and discomfort of repentance and confession comes the fullness of joy that we can have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we trust in your forgiveness, as we trust in your salvation, that we would walk in the fullness of that joy, and we, that we would walk in righteousness and that we would do justice for the rest of the week until you bring us back together again if you tarry. Amen.